We have reached our fourth lecture in constructing a passage, and we're using the little acronym of SOLDIER to help us. We can pass one of those outlines over here to Um Cornet. And so let's review a little bit. Thus far, we began with S, which is select the passage. In the first lecture, we learned about choosing or selecting our passage. So here you are. You want to begin preaching. Where do you begin? Well, you have to choose a particular passage to preach on. And we learned that it's often best to preach through books, but it's not always best to preach through books. I think that is the diet that we ought to give our people, but that's not the only food that we ought to feed them. Even Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is known for his lengthy expositional sermons through books like Acts and Romans and Ephesians and 1 John, he did not always preach through books. In fact, every Sunday evening was an evangelistic sermon in his church in London. And it wasn't a part of a series. If a particular text of Scripture strikes you powerfully, then Martin Lloyd-Jones encouraged that man to preach it. In fact, he wrote one of his most well-known books called Spiritual Depression. And spiritual depression came about when he was reading some particular passages and he was struck. And he said the outline came together very quickly to him as he was thinking about it. And he preached a series of sermons on Sunday mornings, uh, a, a topical in the sense of they were not sequential verse by verse, but even then they were expositional sermons. So that is select the passage. Oh then, would be observe our passage. And in that, we learned about the second step, which is how to analyze the buffalo, is what we said. And we can find a myriad of details as we analyze the passage of Scripture. C. C is link the passage. And in link the passage, we learn the importance of cross-references. In our information gathering stage of sermon preparation. Now this is also an important part of the interpretation process. But even as we're gathering information, let's use cross-references. Listen to what the Baptist Confession of Faith says. Baptist Confession of Faith 1.9 says, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. Therefore, if you are preaching on the, let's say, the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to find cross-references to help you. Don't forget about what Jesus said, that His body is the temple in John 2.21, or that the church is the temple, 1 Corinthians 3. And we learned different ways to find those cross-references. One of them was reflection. Remember we said read and ponder and pray. You're on your knees, you're going through the passage, and then as you're thinking through it, cross-references come to mind. That's why it's so important to do our own scripture reading. The only time we read the Bible is not when we're preparing a sermon. Your sermons will be stale, boring, and focus on the same old scriptures. But if you're 
constantly infusing your mind with scripture. That's going to help you with cross-references. And then we also talked about uh, using the sidebar in a Bible or using the uh, treasury of scripture knowledge, some kind of concordance. Cross-references give credibility to your interpretation. Remember the illustration that we used about two or three witnesses? And we said, Bob and Jack are having a debate about if he returned that particular book to his house. And Bob says, you didn't return it. And Jake says, I did return it. He says, okay, wait a minute. Let me get some witnesses. Ah, over here, my neighbor and my uncle and this man over here, they all said they saw me bring back the book. Okay, now there's greater credibility. It doesn't mean that only one person cannot be credible. But the more witnesses you have, the more credible it will be. And in this case, the witnesses for your sermon is the cross-reference. Cross-references are like a, a symphony orchestra. Each verse, or we could say each instrument, has its own part To make everything come together smoothly. So everyone has its own part and they add something special. Even when you're going through the synoptic gospels. Feeding of the 5,000 found in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But each one of those stories, each one of those authors gives a little bit extra flair. It's like the flute or the tuba adding something to bring it together in harmony. Well, today's lesson will be the D. And that is, now we're going to be dividing our passage. We selected it. We're observing it. Now we're bringing in cross-references, and now we're starting to put it together in some kind of form. Now, some of you may have heard of a Venn diagram. This was named after a man named John Venn. I believe he was a 19th century logician. And a Venn diagram shows how different parts come together and they all have this in common. So you might say, uh, Bodhisattva is a pastor and a father and a husband, but it's all Seth right here. And there's some overlap of what a husband does and what a father does and what a pastor does, even in this outline year. So there's going to be times where we're going to take this eye and we're bringing it all the way up here in the inter- in, uh, interpretation process. Then over here, we're going to be doing some observation over here and linking together cross-references. So this is not some stale wooden uh, outline where you just have to follow it woodenly. We're just trying to put in some kind of form, even though there's going to be some mixing and matching. So let me give a little illustration here of how Abimelech helps preachers with outlining. How many of you know who King Abimelech was in the Old Testament? Abraham fell into deep trouble because he hid his relationship with whom? Sarah. Yes, Sarah, his wife. And so King Abimelech, he says, oh, I know who that is. That's Abraham. And he says, and I know who that is. That is Sarah. But the problem is, even though he knew who Abraham was and he knew who Sarah was, the big problem was is he did not know how they were related to one another. And this failure brought problems in Abimelech's life and almost brought him death. This is what God said to him in Genesis 20, verse 3. 
Abimelech, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. He was told by Abraham that Sarah was his sister. She was so beautiful, he was fearful that he might be killed for his wife. So he says, let's just say our relationship is different. It's brother and sister. And in the same way, God says to many a preacher, you are a dead man for the very same reason that he spoke these words to that old king of Gerar, Abimelech. And this, this is it. We as preachers often do not understand how the words of Scripture are related to one another. Just as Abraham and just how Sarah, you might know some details about them, but if you don't know how they're related, there's going to be problems. We speak of our Abraham text. I know what Abraham means. And we speak of our Sarah text. And we say, I know what that means. <clears throat> but we fail to show how these passages, the words, the verbs, the sentences are related. And no one can say that they really know who Abraham is. And they really know who Sarah is. Unless they know how they are related together. And no one can say... Oh, I really understand Romans 7. We might understand a little bit about Romans 7, but if we don't see how Romans 7 is in re the proper relationship with the rest of the book of Romans, we're going to be in trouble. And that's what this is about right here. It's about relationships. How those particular passages are related to other parts. And that's what the diagram is. That is what dividing it is. That is what the outline is about. Not only... Are the words of Scripture inspired? And that is true. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. But also the relationship of these words with the rest of Scripture are inspired as well. So let me give you a few hints for dividing your text. And then we're going to do lots of practice today. I almost, I even printed out a piece of paper and I thought about Cutting pieces of paper with little pieces of text together and having you form them just right in front of you. And then I thought, oh, that might be, that might be a little bit too much. So I gave you um, some, some homework on the back that we're going to work through together to look at how we can divide this particular mm -hmm. buffalo into smaller pieces. In this case, the Word of God so that our people can understand it. So let me give seven hints for dividing your text. Number one, follow the flow of the passage. So you're reading it, you're reading it over and over again, and you're just, you're just following the flow of how it works together. Read through the passage and search for the main idea, and then break it down by inserting signposts. Think of the, the main points of the outline. You have three points. Think of them as signposts. That will serve as a map to show your people where to go. So let's give an example. Mark 8.34. What is the main idea in Mark 8.34? Here's what the verse says. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must de deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what I did was I, I, I broke it down to find the main idea. And here's the main thrust. He must. Do you see how that's sectioned off in your notes? He must. And what must he do? He must do three things. What are they? Number one, deny himself. Number two, take up his cross. And number three, 
follow me. You must do those three things if you want to do what? Come after Jesus Christ. I mean, there's your outline. For those who want to come after Christ, here are three things you must do. I'm just going to put them in an outline. Point one, two, and three. And then your job is to explain what each one of those means. What does it mean to deny yourself? What does it mean to take up your cross? What does it mean to follow after Christ? So by breaking up the verse into phrases, then we're able to find the main point. Verse 34 shows that those who want to be disciples of Jesus must deny, take up, and follow. So seek to find the main idea as you're going through it. Number two, pay attention to the grammar, or we can say look for the lishakus. Or the kambes, or the kasis, or the kutanis. If you know Hebrew or Greek, that will help you, but you don't have to know those. Look for those particular conjunctions. They're like, they're like signposts as you're driving through uh, the highway and you see a merge sign. It says, hey, merge because there's going to be a turn coming up. When you see that kutani at the front of a verse, if you see that lishako, if you see a therefore, that's an indication that there might be a change in direction and perhaps a change in the main point. Number three, be parallel. Be parallel. That means if your first point, you're writing out an outline. Your outline has two points. You don't always have to have even points in your sermon. We looked at the great example of George Whitfield's sermon, The Conversion of Zacchaeus. But even there, it was logical. It was following through the passage. But most people, they think of outlines as just little hooks to hang your coat on, to hang your thoughts on. That's all it is. So if your first point is a phrase, then make all the points a phrase. If it is a question, then use a question. Match nouns with nouns and verbs with verbs. Keep things parallel because people will follow you better if things are parallel. Parallel outlines are logical outlines. So yesterday, uh, I had the work crew and I said... All right, the first thing we're going to do today, we're going to put in the wire. Tomorrow, we're going to put in the fence. And the third day, we're going to build. You are going to do A, and then you're going to do B, and then you're going to do C. And they understood that clearly. But what if I changed the parallelism and I said something like, today, you're going to install the wire, and then tomorrow, I think the fence is coming. Now, wait a minute. Does that mean we're putting in the fence? Because you just said the fence is coming, but... That doesn't actually mean we're putting in the fence. And then the third day, we're going to... Does anyone have any trowels? I just asked a question. Like, that's not parallel. Rather than saying, you're going to do A, and then you're going to do B, and then you're going to do C. Now, this might sound a little scholastic for you, but I'm saying this is probably even more important in unscholastic, uneducated, you're sitting down with little coquanas and grannies and they want to follow. That's why when I preach, I often, and people will often laugh at me when I preach, but I'm almost always using some kind of cups or cell phones or rocks. In fact, when I go to Mr. Shisana's now, he was so happy the other day. When I sit down, he made this nice little table and I sit down with Mr. Shisana and his wife, his wife, Cannot read, he can read, 
But he's, uh, it takes a little time, and he was so happy because next to me is an old drum, and there are old batteries on the drum. And I always use these batteries to teach. So he cleaned off the batteries real nice. And the batteries were, were, were set right in really nicely. And I looked for the batteries, and there they were. And I looked at him, and he was really happy. He's smiling. I said, okay, I'm going to teach my sermon. And here are my batteries. Okay, this is so-and-so, and this is so These are our three points. These are our five points. What am I trying to do? I'm just trying to break it down so they can grasp it. Uh, let me give an example of an unbalanced Outline. Look at number four. Imbalanced, unparalleled outlines are confusing. Consider tw- uh, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. This is the Great Commission. And we might say something like, Christians make disciples, that's the main point, make disciples by what? Going, baptizing, instruction. Okay, that's not bad. That's not terrible. We're going to look at worse outlines. But you could say, going baptizing, teaching. Do you see how those are parallel? So we're going to give some more. I've got lots of examples of bad outlines later on. Number, letter D, doodle. Have you heard the word doodle? To doodle means to scribble. It means to scribble on your notepad. It means to write a rough draft. So here you are. You've got your piece of paper. You're going through the passage. You're on your knees. You're praying through it. You're observing the buffalo. You're bringing in cross-references. Now you've got your piece of paper, and you're just writing down. You say, okay, where does that break apart? I think after these two particular verses, I think I should draw a line after those. I think that's one, one thought. So I think I'm going to break that down. I think that's going to be point one. And then I'm going to read a little bit further. Okay, it seems like the next four verses come to the next one. I'm going to write number two. And you're just doodling, you're writing down on your notepad. Similar to the observation stage, as you're working through your passage, circle words, write out thoughts, jot out sample outlines, structure the passage in different ways, ask questions to the text. E, number five, diagram Or phrase. Diagram is a scary word, so we might want to use the word phrase. This simply means to break the passage into smaller pieces by showing how each part is related to one another. Phrases are groups of words that communicate a smaller idea. So here's an example. Here's a sentence. My father, Magezi, loves to eat vusha and drink coke. Now, if you want to break that down, here's how you could do it. My father, Magezi, loves. What does he love to do? He loves to do two things. Eat musha and drink coke. So now you're breaking it down into pieces. Or if you look at 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. I broke it down for you, but it would be the writer, the recipient's, and the greeting. Let's go to the next one. Number six. Be descriptive in your outline. Shallow, boring preachers are not specific. They say things like, be Christ-like. But they don't say how to be Christ-like. So in your, in your outline, you want to be descriptive. And then finally, be realistic. Uh, honestly, You might come up with a really clever outline, but very rarely are people going to remember your outline. I'm sorry to say that because you took all this time 
and you made sure it was parallel and you might have even alliterated it and they all started with the same letter. And that's okay sometimes. You can do that. That might be helpful. But even though the outline was very clear, most people will forget the outline a day or two later or most likely they're going to forget the outline an hour later. So in one sense, the outline is important because the outline should come from the passage. But in another sense, the outline is not very important in that what is most important is the main point. Think of outlines as scaffolding. You're building a beautiful church. You put the scaffolding there. You stand on top of the scaffolding so you can build the steeple. And then after you build the steeple, you take down the scaffolding and everyone stands back and they stare at the steeple. That's the main idea. And then you take the scaffolding away. If you leave the scaffolding up, if you put too much focus on the scaffolding, it will take attention away from the main idea, which would be the steeple or the main idea of the passage. All right, let's look at some sample outlines. Ezra 7.10. Could someone read that? This is Roman figure number four and letter A. Caleb? For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Okay. So this is a bad sermon outline. It's not even that bad because it's at least related. But they're not parallel. Point number one, study. You can see where that came from the passage, right? Letter B, make sure you practice. Letter C, teach the word. That's not bad, but what if you made it a little bit more parallel? Go to page number three. Carefully study the word, carefully obey the word, carefully teach the word. Can you see how that's parallel? Now, where did the word carefully even come from? Well, it's not in the passage. Ah, but it is in the passage. That word isn't in the passage. But where does the word carefully come from in that verse? Can anyone set his heart? Oh, but you did your study. Lloyd, you studied what the idea of set his heart means in the Bible. And you said, okay, set his heart, it's actually... Actually, the focus of the mind, it, 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 it means focus. Okay, so I'm going to use the idea of carefully. And then I'm going to make those three things parallel. Study, do, and teach. And now you make it, now you make it parallel. You preach a sermon called Three Aims of the Preacher. Carefully study the Word, carefully obey the Word, and carefully Teach the word. Can you see how your audience is going to be able to grasp that a little bit more because it's logical? It's parallel. Let's look at another example. <clears throat> Proverbs 28:13. Someone read that verse. I didn't write it out. Or if you have it memorized. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but he that confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So here's the bad outline. Don't hide your sin, Roman figure number one. Roman figure number two, confess and forsake. Well, even though those aren't terrible, but then let's look at a, a different example. Perhaps you titled your sermon, The Responses and Rewards 
to rebellion. Now, even that title is important because, for a few things, it recognizes that in that verse, that verse talks about a response and it talks about a reward. And in that title, you even used three R's. Now, again, you can get carried away with alliteration. Alliteration means you use the same letter. You can get carried away with that. But if you can use any kind of methods just to help your people understand. Hey, if you want to use object lessons in your sermon, I have no problem with that. Are they going to understand? Are they going to have a deeper appreciation for what the passage says? So how about this as an outline? Letter A, the arrogant. Now here, it's just a word, basically, a phrase. It's not a sentence. It's not a question. Roman figure number one, it only has two points, the arrogant and the humble. Now it has subpoints. The response. What does he do? He conceals his sin. And the reward of concealing his sin is what? I can imagine sitting down with Kokwana and saying, Kokwana, this verse is so important. I use this verse all the way, all the time, by the way. Proverbs 28, 13. Or you sit down with a teenager and you say, hey, just want you to know, there are two people in this verse. Which one are you? There's two people. There is the arrogant man, La Tizunisaka, and there's the humble man. Which one are you? And if you are the arrogant man, there's two things. There's the response and then his answer. Response, he conceals his transgressions. And if you do that, and if you hide your sin, here's what your reward will be. You think you're so smart by hiding your sins from your parents or from your pastor, or from your teacher, or from your authorities. But I'm here to tell you that there is a reward for that. And this is it. You will not prosper. But here's the good news, because there's another man over here, and he's humble, and there's also a response by him, and there's also a reward, just like the other person. Now can you see how they're getting this? Like, you're not rehashing it. You just told me that this man over here, and if I was teaching it in the village, I would definitely have a battery, and the battery would be the first person. And I'd say, here's the response and the reward, and then I'd have another battery, and I'd say, and here's the response and reward from this guy. What is... The response of the humble man. It's actually two things. He confesses and he forsakes his sin. And if you do that young man, if you do that young lady, if you respond this way to your sin, here's what your reward will be. You'll obtain mercy. I think if you present it that way, people are going to say, ah, I get that. That makes sense to me. All right, so we gave a couple examples of one-verse outlines. The verses were brief, and we made an outline. But let's go to a more lengthy passage, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 22-33, is perhaps the most descriptive passage on marriage in all of the Bible. Most definitely the most descriptive passage on the duties of husbands and wives. Here would be a bad sermon outline. Wives should submit and husbands should love. Now, in a sense, that's not bad because they're parallel, right? Noun, verb. 
noun verb. But that is not very descriptive, like we said before. Let's give a more descriptive outline. Let's say we name the sermon Marriage Duties. And we're going to have two main points, my audience, today, as we're looking at the duties in marriage. Point number one, the wives' duties. Point number two, the husband's duties. Not point number one, the wives' duties. Point number three, men, do you love your wife? See how that's not parallel? So you have two main points, and then here are the subpoints. Now, I want you to look at A, B, C, and D, and I want you to give me an observation of that particular outline. Those are subpoints. What do you notice about the, that outline underneath the duty of the wife? Can anyone give me an observation? Caleb? Okay, they're all questions. You see that? So now you're setting up your audience. You're asking a question. That's a way to draw them in. So first, flock, here are the duties of the wife. And today, we're going to look at one, two, three, four, five duties of the wife, or at least in question form, what? Number two, to whom? Number three, why? So now you're asking them questions. Then you go to the duty of the husband. Any observations from that? What are you, Reggie? Uh, the, the husband is commanded. Okay, it has must. He must do all three of these things, okay? Anyone else? These are commands, not questions here. Five duties of the husband. All right. It's the same verb, but it's a different kind of action. Even though it's the same action, it's distinct each time. Hmm. Let's do Romans 1, 24 through 32. And I'd like you to turn to this in your Bibles. And I just preached on this recently. So I'm going to use this as an example. And this might help us to find how to outline our passage. Romans 1. And let's look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Could you mark that in your Bible? I'm using the Global Study Bible. And when I come to verse 24, there is, it's, it's indented. Remember when we were on this point over here with the S and we were looking at how to select the passage? And remember when we said... One of the ways to find the passage is if there's a marker, that is, if there's a heading over it or if it's indented. So in my Bible, verse 24 is indented. Again, that doesn't mean you couldn't preach a longer passage, but it might tell you that a new sermon should begin with verse 24. Okay, underline, God gave them up. Do we find that phrase again in this passage? Yes. Where else do we find that phrase? Okay, so now you go to 26, and in my Bible, that's also indented. I don't know if it's that way in yours, but in my Bible, that's also indented. So I've got an underline with God gave them up in verse 24. Verse 26, God gave them up. Do we find that phrase again? Yes. 
Verse 28. God gave them up. Now, you're observing. And you're bringing in cross-references. And now you're doodling. And you're writing your notepad. And you're saying, huh, this is interesting. Paul says three times that God gave them up. And as you're studying the passage, you start to see that those are really three main points to his argument. Here's what Paul is saying. You go back to the early verses and Paul says, I'm angry with sinners. And I'm angry with sinners for three reasons. Number one, they suppress the truth. That is, they have access to the truth, but they hate it so much, they push it down. Number two, they do not worship God as he ought to be worshipped. And number three, they're not thankful. And because of those things, God says he's going to judge these people. He's going to bring down condemnation on them. And one of the ways that God is going to bring condemnation upon these people that suppress the truth, do not glorify God, and are not thankful, one of the ways that God is going to judge them is he's going to give them up. Speaking of Abimelech, what did God do to Abimelech, which was common grace to that pagan king? Do you remember what he did as a mercy to him? He told him that he was, he was with Sarah. But even more than that, can you remember specifically? Here's Abimelech. Abimelech is right here. He's going down, he's going down the mountain full speed. And he's going to commit adultery with that woman. And what does the Bible say about God's action with Abimelech? He stopped him from sinning. Think how many times in your life you wanted to sin and God wouldn't let you. You had it all mapped out in your mind. You were going to go to this place at this time and out of nowhere the electricity went out. Out of nowhere your car broke down. You would have gone from A to Z. And then somehow, you only got to see. And you know why that is? God stopped you from sinning. That's a mercy. That's a grace. But you know one of the judgments God will bring on rebellious people? As, as that semi, as that truck is moving full speed down the hill. I was just speaking with Um Christo today. We, we live next to a dirt road. And we have a new tar road. The tar road that goes from Elam to Guiani. But many years ago, that tar road was not there. And the main road was the road that goes by our house. It's a dirt road. It comes all the way down the hill and then it turns over to Mashamba. Um Christo says, oh, I, I remember this road. Yesterday, when he was coming all the way from Bloemfontein, he said, I don't remember how to get to your house. It's been so long. And then he said, oh, but when I got closer, all the memories came back. And he said, we were building structures in Bokota. And we had a huge semi loaded down with cement. And the drivers lost control of the truck and it came full speed down this hill. And people who were sitting in the back were jumping off and the men tried to, tried to take care of this semi and they couldn't. And it crashed to the bottom and the men were killed. Several men. I've heard this story told many times throughout the years in our village of the semi that lost control and men died inside. It was just 
crushed to smithereens. And Umcriso said, that was my truck. That's the way we are. We're going down full speed down to our death. And God, in his common grace, or we can call it common goodness, says, I'm going to stop you. But if we rebel against God enough, you know what the Bible says? There will be a time, and I don't know when that time is. It could be today or tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, sinner. I don't know when it is, but here's what you need to know. There will be a time when God will say, okay, have at it. I'm going to take my hands off. I'm going to give you up to your sin. And he does this in three ways. Verse 24 God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Now, when I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking, okay, that seems like sexual immorality. So I wrote down sexual immorality. When I came to verse 26, God gave them up to something else. What does he give them up to? Dishonor. Honorable passions for the women exchange natural relations to those that are contrary to nature. What, what is that referring to? Sodomy. Homosexuality. So now it seems to be a progression. Fornication is sinful, but it's naturally sinful. Homosexuality, homosexuality is unnaturally sinful. Okay. Immorality. Homosexuality. And then third, what does it say? Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them up to a debased mind. Now, this seemed a little bit backwards to me because I thought, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to be a progression. You would think the debased mind would come first, right? Like immorality, homosexuality, a debased mind. It would seem like that should be first. So this kind of thing happens to me all the time. I'm reading the passage and I say, I, I don't understand that. That's good. If you don't understand it, write down the question and don't finish your sermon preparation until you can answer the question. So I'm reading on and I'm reading on. It lists 22 different sins that these people in a debased mind are doing. But now watch verse 32. This is when the clouds parted and the sun came through and I said, oh, I follow. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree... That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but what? Give approval. That is a progression downward. Hey, fornication, I mean, that was like in the shadows, right? That's at night when no one's around. Homosexuality, I'm so embarrassed. I'm not going to tell anyone. But now this person has gone so low that what is he doing now? He's right in the open. We call this pride marches of homosexuality. We say, in the past I was ashamed, and now I'm in the open, and I wear my rainbow shirt, and I come and I say, not only am I not ashamed of my homosexuality, but I'm praising you for doing that. And if we want to make it parallel, maybe you can make it parallel with something like this. You could say, fornication... abomination and appreciation. That's just an example of I want Coquana to understand this sermon. And I want to give one word similar sounding so she says 
I can put my thoughts on those three hooks on the wall, and that makes sense to me. Paul uses the same phrase in two verses at a time, 24, 26, 28. And I can understand Does that make sense? Can you understand the outline, the parallelism? That's what you're doing as you put it together. Now, our last thing that we're going to do. Turn the page. And you're going to practice. So turn your Bibles to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And I broke those three verses... into 17 sections. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to stop our lecture, at least on the recording, because there's no need to do the recording. So we'll stop here.